0: Our Old Testament scripture reading is Proverbs chapter 2. The text for our sermon is going to be from Ephesians 6, the language of Proverbs functions very much as a foundation for what the Apostle Paul says in that passage. Proverbs 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, For wisdom will come into your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways." So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 6. We're going to begin at verse 1. And slightly different than what the bulletin says, we're reading through verse 4. There's simply too much going on here to follow my initial schedule. I promise we will return at some point to verses 5 through 9. I'm not quite sure when yet, but we will, we will get there later in the series. This morning, Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray for the presence and work of your Holy Spirit. As we have heard the public reading of your word, as we anticipate its proclamation, we humbly confess that for any of this to be any good for us, it must be because you are the one at work among us. You know our weaknesses, you know that all that would hinder our receiving of your word, both the challenges of your word and also the call to be comforted, to rest in your promises to us. And so we pray that you would clear away all of those challenges that we might hear and receive what you have for us as your gathered church this morning. Do all of this for us, through this the preaching of your holy word, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the more I worked in this passage from Ephesians chapter 6, the more it became clear that this was something like 3, 4, 5, I don't know, a whole bunch of sermons. And so, this morning, we are focusing just on these first four verses, and in fact, we are really focusing on Paul's language in verse 2, that this is the first commandment with a promise. We are simply going to meditate this morning on this language of promise combined together with this commandment that God gives to his people, being challenged, being comforted by the fact that all of it begins with this one word. Chapter 6, verse 1, the very first word of the passage, is full of gospel, full of good news for us as his gathered church. Paul begins these words, children, simply assuming that presence in the assembly where the church is gathered, simply assuming that listening to what he is saying is the children of God's covenant people. And with this word, assuming that these children are listening, we suddenly have a perspective on all that he has been saying in Ephesians. That all that he has been saying has been for all of his covenant people. Echoing that promise, going back to the preaching of Peter at Pentecost, the promise is to you and to your children. Echoing the promise to Abraham, the promise is to you and to your offspring, to those who will come after you. Paul here assumes that children are listening to what he has been saying all along. Now, one of the lessons that uh, we were taught to derive from this in seminary was that we should make sure that every once in a while in sermons, we address the children. So maybe at some point you have a point you're making and it's, you know, a difficult idea, so you use an illustration that speaks to children in particular. And in fact, When I was in seminary, I think it's still the case. They have these evaluation forms. Some of you have done them for seminarians who have preached. And one of the things the form says is, does the sermon take into account the fact that there are all ages present in the congregation? Well, students really want to get a good grade on that part. And so the easy way to get a good grade on that is you make sure you have a place in your sermon where you say, children, for example, here is what the Lord means here. And then, you know, they'll check that off and, okay, I got a good grade on that. So way back when I was much younger as a minister, this is what I had learned every once in a while I would do this. And I have this vivid memory of having a place where I address children and watching a parent, they're like, hey, pay attention. Quit playing with that thing there. Listen up. This part's for you. I've never done it again. This part's for you? All of it, every moment. Every moment of the worship service is addressing our children. Every part of God's word, every moment of what is spoken is addressing our children. And so if you ask, I would get bad grades on that. I try to avoid purposefully singling out kids. Why? Because they should always be listening. We're training them, aren't we, to be listening at every point to what is happening when God's word is being proclaimed. Now, what nevertheless is the case, that there are places where God's word does address people in certain circumstances of life, and they are rightly then addressed explicitly. And that is what God's word is doing here. Children, obey, and obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He's not saying, okay, now this is the part where children, okay, you quit messing with your toys and your crayons and your snacks, and now you listen. no. No. You're supposed to have been listening the whole time. The assumption is you are listening. And here now is where you are being addressed in particular. In the context of all that has been said. And in that very point. That Paul is assuming. That God's word is assuming. That all of scripture is addressing all of us. Is gospel. And this is what I want us to celebrate and enjoy together this morning. So. The replacement sermon title, since I changed around my schedule, is that this is the first commandment with a promise. And we're going to see this in three parts. First, the command, that is with a promise. Second, the source of the promise. And then third, the meaning of the promise. The command with a promise Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. And then the apostle simply quotes the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. The first thing we have to deal with here, remember, part of the whole point to what I'm trying to emphasize is that scripture here has been assuming that our children, our young people, our teenagers, all of us have been listening the whole time. And so when this command comes, it comes in the context of gospel. We don't just suddenly transition to, now we have some moral rules. And the message of this text is, children, listen up, don't be naughty. If we do that, and it is far too common that we do that in the Christian church, this is deadly. If our purpose of having our children with us is hopefully they'll be less naughty when they're older, this is death dealing legalism. It is not gospel. And so we must hear what God's word has for us here in the context of the gospel having been proclaimed in Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, the apostle proclaimed these words. Begin at verse 4. But God being rich in mercy even of the, because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel context for Paul's addressing to children. This has been announced as promise. You have been raised to new life in Christ. You are seated in the heavenly places in Christ. This is who you are. You get to believe and rest in that. Now, as you believe and rest in that, that being seated in the heavenly places gives us new life. And that gift of new life is then what is being described. This is good news. There's another level of gospel context. That big thing that Paul was announcing, remember part of his language in Ephesians 2 and 1, is that what God is doing is he is uniting things in Christ. That this new life is uniting all things in Christ. And one of the main realities that God is uniting in Christ is our human relationships. He is restoring people to each other. And so what he's doing in this whole section of Ephesians is he's giving examples of what it looks like for human relationships to be transformed by this good news. God is making us new in Christ. That affects how we live together. He's spoken of Jews and Gentiles being united in the church. Here he's talking about the home being transformed. And one of the things the gospel changes, that it restores, that it makes new, is the relationship between parents and children. Now there is so much that can be said here in this context, obviously, about how this relationship is transformed, how it is made new in Christ. But the force of it here is that God is The the, the way the world was created to be, that was broken by sin, he is setting right in Jesus. And he gives us, by his spirit, the beginning of that life as it ought to be. Indeed, for children in particular, this is another level of gospel context. Listen to how the apostle addresses fathers in verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In ancient Roman culture, we spoke of this earlier regarding husbands and wives, the father had something like unlimited control, power. And what the scriptures are doing is limiting that. It is curtailing that. It is correcting that abuse in the culture. And the same thing is happening here for for fathers. Notice, who is to be obeyed in verse 1? Parents, including mothers. By the way, this goes back to stuff we talked about last time. Mothers and fathers are treated side by side as equally deserving obedience from children. This was a countercultural statement affirming the role of the mother in the home. Who is it warned of getting this wrong? It's the fathers now. Paul singles out the father as the one to be confronted with this danger, and he does not say, "Children obey your parents." Fathers make sure your children obey. It's not what he says. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in. And now the word discipline here, we ought to hear in the broadest sense possible. The discipleship, the following of Jesus, the living in the way that is good to live in. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction. The word here translated instruction also is a very broad, the fullness of life, of what life ought to be. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This would have been good news for children. Children were being told, here is what your father is called to do. Not to provoke to anger, but to bring up in something. And by the way, what beautiful good news language is that? Not bring them so that one day they'll get there. Not... Raise them so that hopefully one day they 'll get into this thing that is whatever this way is of the Lord. No, no, the language of it says they are in it. Bring them up in it. Why is Paul so confident that the children are in this way to be brought up in this way? because they are the covenant children, they are those who have received the sign of baptism, been welcomed as part of the covenant people, and so right there is gospel context, good news that Whatever is happening in the raising, the discipling, the instructing of children is bringing them up in something that I realize it may sound obvious to say, but we take it for granted that they, in fact, are in, which is that uh, the, uh, the instruction of the Lord. All of that is gospel context. The death and resurrection of Jesus, God is restoring relationships that includes the home and that includes this atmosphere being cultivated for the raising of children in, this, in, in, in the ways of the Lord. The gospel context of the command. We have to make sure we hear the specific language of the command. Again, point one here, the, the command with a promise. We're going to get to the promise, but we need to make sure we're hearing the command rightly. There's actually two versions of it in our text. Verse one, children, obey your parents. Now, this would be the way of addressing especially younger children, where part of the way of wisdom is to do what you're told. But obedience here means far more than that. For the goal of parents, what were we just told, is to bring them up in a way. Well, that doesn't just mean do what you're told. One of the ways children obey their parents is by embracing that way as their own, as living in that way, following that way in such that they are not needing to do what they are told because they don't need to be told because they have embraced the way. That word obey anticipates all of that as children grow older. And so, and we, we learn this so clearly from Proverbs, right? Where the language of Proverbs is a way that is good, not simply... Do what you're told arbitrarily or randomly at every point, but rather look, this is the good way. Embrace that way. Parents must be especially careful to hear the word obey in that way as children grow older. It can be tempting to want to control simply by way of moment-by-moment demanding obedience, neglecting what this scripture envisions, which is a maturing and being brought up in a way that they increasingly embrace as their own. But then, notice that the commandment that Paul then quotes, verse five, says it differently. The word is not obey, but honor. And honor, of course, has in view a much broader category. This is something that applies to us for all of life. No matter how young or old we are, honoring our father and mother matters. Whether that means caring for them in old age, one of the primary ways this would envision that you honor your father and mother is by continuing on the way that is good when you are no longer obeying them. That too is its own kind of honoring those who have come before us. And so it has in view, in particular, children, small children in the home, obey, but as an application of that broader idea of honoring our parents more uh, throughout all of life. And then notice finally about the command that it is a covenantal command. Children, well actually we've already made this point just by pointing out that that word is there. Do you see how that word already means this is a covenantal command? Because Paul is assuming children are present in the covenant assembly hearing the word. But he makes the point even more clearly, children obey your parents in the Lord. Children, you are in the Lord, meaning you are in Christ Meaning, whatever God is calling you to do, he calls you to do in the same way he calls all of us, which is as those who already belong to them, to him. As those who already are in him, who have him as our head, who represents us, who have received all of the grace that has been proclaimed in this passage. This is one of my favorite passages to point to when the question is asked why we baptize the children of believers. Because the scriptures from beginning to end Teach, and then as the scriptures go on, especially in the New Testament, simply assume that children are part of the covenant people. And therefore, all that God's word has said about the congregation being in Christ, in the Lord, in Him, also speaks to the children in our midst. They are in the Lord. There are times, God's word knows this, there are times when obeying your parents is difficult here's the thing, something you'll realize as you get older, your parents are sinners. They're not always going to get this right. And so, this, this this is a trial, a challenge in the Christian life. Well, what is one of the main places we go with all the trials, the challenges in the Christian life? We remember we are in Christ, and we look to Christ. Jesus was 12 years old once. Now, you think it's difficult to obey sinful parents. <laughs> Jesus never sinned, right? See, the trick you have is you're a sinner too. You're not as wise as you should be. There might be times where you think your parents are the problem and really they're not. <laughs> Jesus didn't have to worry about that. He was sinless. And yet he, we are told so clearly, was faithful to his parents loyal to his parents in the way of obeying his father and mother. And we can assume very safely that there were countless times where that was difficult for him, where there was a kind of suffering involved in that. And so we proclaim to the children in our midst that you are in the Lord, that all that you are called to do is as those who are in Christ, and that our Lord Jesus Christ has sanctified. He has... establish that path before you. He has gone the way ahead of you. He has walked the way of being faithfully eight years old, 12 years old ahead of you. And all that he calls you to do is nothing more than what he has done before you already, what he has done for you as the one who would die for you and as the one who now by his spirit enables you to do this with him. Jesus has sanctified childhood. And so we can say to our children, that all that you are challenged to do is as those who are in the Lord. Parents, I want to plead with you to speak with your children this way. And I don't just mean explicitly. I mean the tone of your address to them. The way you correct, the way you exhort, the way you encourage ought to be permeated with this confidence in who they are in Christ. You are not trying to stir up doubt. You're not trying to question their faith. You're not trying to say, do you really believe? Rather, you're saying, believe. Rest in what God has promised you. And you see, that's not just a matter of what you say, but it's a matter of all of our exhortations, all of our corrections, all of our encouragements should be surrounded with or be permeated by this confidence that we address our children as those who the Lord has claimed as being in Him. And I, I, want, I want to press this point, that this is about the aroma of the home more than it is about specific things that are said at specific times. That our children grow up with a sense of belonging, with a sense of clear identity. I mean, you know, we know, we're in a cultural moment where Identity is something of a buzzword that we talk about. And we know there are many growing up with a sense of anxiety and fear and disconnection and unrootedness because we are in many ways identityless, rootlessness. And it's one of the ways we must avoid the culture war mode with these things because there is so much suffering involved in this. And what we proclaim is the good news that in Christ we receive a secure identity. And one of the gifts, the treasures we have Uh, discipling children in the midst of the covenant is that language of identity. You are in the Lord. Start there. All that we're called to do, we're all called to do difficult things, to persevere in difficult ways, no more or less than our children. And the only way we can do it is because of how the scriptures here address us. In the Lord. We belong to him. He has given us his promises and therefore we can persevere in the way of following him. My favorite way to summarize all of this is that we encourage, we teach our children from the very beginning to say the same things we say. To say, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. To say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. To say with Lord's Day one, my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It is these expressions of faith that we cultivate in our children that from that foundation, surrounded by that comfort, they then hear the call to follow the way that is good. The command with the promise. Second, the source of the promise. The source of the promise. What do I mean by that? Well, obviously it's from God. But what I mean here is when Paul gives the promise, it's in quote marks in your text. He is quoting something else. What is that something else that he is quoting? Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. He's quoting the Ten Commandments. He's quoting the fifth commandment from Deuteronomy chapter five as Israel's about to go into the promised land and speaking to children in particular, he says, remember, this commandment that you are given is given with a promise. And he sets forth that promise as being one of the things meant to encourage, to motivate, to strengthen them in that way. The source of the promise, Paul quotes the 10 commandments. This is full of beautiful theology, full of meaning and depth of what God's word is doing when it quotes Deuteronomy chapter 5, addressing the church today. First, a bit of an issue we have to clear away. When Paul says this is the first commandment with a promise, the challenge is that there is also, well, let me show you this actually here, Deuteronomy chapter 5, The challenge is that when it comes time for the second commandment, so the first commandment, no other gods, second commandment, don't worship God through images, he says this For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, see, now that sounds like a promise, and that's the second commandment. Now we're at the fifth commandment. How can he say this is the first commandment with a promise? Well, all sorts of delightful ways of trying to answer it. Here is what is clearest. This is the commandment with a specific promise tied to it. In the second commandment, Moses simply points to a more general principle, that God is show steadfast love to those who keep his commandments in general. That is a more general principle being spoken of. In the fifth commandment, the way Paul can say this is the first one with a promise is that it is one with a promise tied to it in particular. There's something about the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother, that has a particular connection with the promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. There is a specific promise tied to this commandment. And here is the rich, beautiful theology in Paul's use of these words. He is taking something that was spoken to Israel as they were about to go into the promised land, and he applies it directly with no qualification to the church today. He takes one of the commandments together with the covenantal structure of it, a command with a promise, a way life will go when you follow this command, and he takes that whole way of speaking, and he simply wholesale transfers it over and says, this addresses the church today. God's word here is saying wondrous things about how the covenant works, about how the scriptures work, about how all of God's word fits together. It is telling us, first of all, that you have a page in your Bible that is not inspired. And that is the page that marks off the Old and New Testament from each other. That was put there by your editors. Paul's saying, no, no, all that stuff spoken then, that's talking to you. This is yours, and the dynamic, the way of the covenant that it describes is also yours. And the, the part of this that I am convinced, even in fairly scholarly theological circles, is not taken seriously enough, is the directness with which Paul makes this address. That this way, that the law speaks and then the way that it works, addresses the church today. Well, how? How can he do that? Why can he be so sure? I hope you appreciate the strangeness of this. Israel's about to go into the land of Canaan, the promised land. And when God's word says that it may go well with you in the land, what he means is the land of Canaan you are going into. So how does it make any sense at all to speak to churches from all the nations of the world as though that same promise applies to their children? Well, there's many ways the Old Testament signals that this would be the case. The Old Testament is full of the expectation that the nations would be included in Israel. In Deuteronomy, multiple references to the sojourner in the land being in many ways treated like a fellow Israelite, as a kind of promise that God's intention was to include those who were not Israelites, and that therefore the commands and the promises would be for them. He had told Abraham, my goal is that through Israel, all the families of the earth will be blessed. His intention all along was that all the nations, including us, would know the blessing of this way of life. More than that, it is clear in the Old Testament scriptures that the land was never just about the land. The plot of land in Canaan was never the point. This is the silliness of theologies that still think the land is the point now. The land was never the point. It's not like it used to be and now it's not. The land was never the whole point. The land was always about something more. It always pointed forward to something more that God was doing within the very accounts of the Old Testament. It's clear that the land was a kind of restoring of creation, that Uh, Because of sin, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden and the promised land was a picture of God's work of restoring creation as it was made to be. Not just for Israel, but to be a blessing to all nations. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the saints then, those who died, Hebrews wrestles with the fact that there were those who received the promise of the land who died before receiving the land. And he says, well, they knew it wasn't just about the land. They were looking for a heavenly country. They knew the land was a promise of dwelling in God's presence, of new creation, of the world set right, of heaven and earth being united. And indeed, that's part of the key to hearing this. Too many are quick to skip. Well, it was about the land then. It's about heaven now. It's about this earthy thing then. And now it's about, you know, floating on clouds one day. But the land was a picture, well, What was in the middle of Israel? The temple, Jerusalem. The land was a picture of God and his people dwelling together. It was a promise of that dwelling together. God was not going to abandon his creation. Rather, it was the promise of heaven and earth being united, of God's dwelling, being with his people in the new creation, the world set right. And my point here is that this is what the land was always about. So that King David... In Psalm 39, verse 12, at the high point of Israel possessing the land, says, I am a sojourner with you, like all my fathers before me. The psalm says, I am a sojourner. Why? Because they knew the land wasn't about the land. It was about God's promise to set all things right of a new creation. And it is this reality that means Paul can then directly apply that promise to the church today. He says to you as his gathered people that God's promise in the land was always about the new creation to come, setting the world right. And the way of life he gives in his law is the life of that new creation. And so it remains the case. Proclaim to you more for you than it was for Israel because it's even more clear now than it was then that this promise is for us. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now, I want to go on. We need to go on here to the meaning of that promise. But I want to dwell for a moment upon this unity of the scriptures. This way that the apostle can speak directly to the New Testament church by way of applying the fifth commandment together with that promise. Do you sense what this does? That, that move that the apostle makes, what that does for how you read your Bible. Why, why, in fact, why make so much of this point? This means that you can open God's word to any place and have absolute confidence that all of it is God's word for you. That all of it proclaims our Lord Jesus Christ. All of it proclaims the way of the covenant of grace that you are part of. Both the promises of the covenant and the life of the covenant. The blessings, the warnings of the covenant. All of it speaks to the church today as those who are in Christ by faith. This is the glory of Christ. That he is the one in which all of this is yes and amen. That all of it is like simply a diamond that casts more facets of glory of who Jesus is as the one who fulfills all of it. And so we do this work so often as a church of seeing how old and new fit together because at that fitting together just is the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And... It is needed that we would be strengthened, emboldened, encouraged by the faithfulness of God. That he has not changed his ways, that there is no plan A, plan B. Brothers and sisters, you are facing things right now where what you need is courage. And one of the ways the scriptures give us that courage, whether it be to do what is right when it is hard, whether it be to persevere through a dark time by faith, is through this relentless, pervasive, 100% consistent announcement of the faithfulness of God to all that he has ever spoken. And that is what Paul proclaims to us simply by applying those words to us as the church today, the source of the promise. Third and finally, the meaning of the promise Whew, parents are waiting for this. Okay, meaning of the promise. Remember, we have two forms of it. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, and then then the quote from Fifth Commandment, honor your father and your mother. Now, we've already talked about the meaning, distinguishing obey and honor and that sort of thing. Well, we need to think more deeply here. Interesting, isn't it? In verse one, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is Right? kind of seems like unnecessary words i mean the lord commands it you know so that's sort of like the definition of what we say is right so what 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 is paul giving us here what is what is he doing theologically when he says obey your parents the lord for this is right well the tone here is that you already know this is right the tone here is, you can see that this is good and right. This is an obser- There's an observable goodness to this, that the world is ordered rightly when there is a receiving lo- loyally from those who have come before us. And that it is observable that this just is a good thing. This is observable for all of us as human beings. We begin life with nothing. All that we have from the very beginning, we receive from those who have come before us. Now, we know there's all sorts of ways this can be distorted, broken, sin effects, it. all of that's true. Paul's talking about the way it's created to be, and a good creation that remains. That there is a goodness to humbly receiving from those who have come before. And so when Paul says, for this is right... What he's telling us is there's a bigger thing he's talking about, a bigger reality that we can simply observe. And this is, well, first of all, countercultural in a way that confronts us. Right? We, our culture loves the posture of just throwing off what's come before. We're going to make it up on our own, do it our own way. But it's also deeply comforting that there's something in the created order by which God embeds us so that we can receive. That which is good. This just is right. And what is that something that we receive? Well, it is life with the grain of reality. This is what Proverbs 2 describes. When Proverbs, the father, is exhorting the son to seek wisdom, the language of that chapter all throughout is the way that you are receiving is a way that is good, that will protect you, that will protect you from that which is dangerous, that it's not just rules made up randomly and in this case it's not just your parents saying random things that you're stuck doing because they said so but rather they are pointing you to something they ought to be Are parents listening by the way they're pointing you to something that is observably good and so parents are then called to do that work of showing the rightness of it the observable goodness of it to say daughter do you see how this way is fruitful how it is good, how it does lead to blessing, not because God zaps it with blessing, but in a way that a good tree bears fruit. I've used the image many times. When the scriptures speak of a tree bearing fruit, it's not that God looks at the tree, says, hey, tree, good job growing faithfully, and then goes and pins fruit on the tree, right? There's your reward. You got fruit now, No, but it grows. The fruit is a natural consequence. Likewise, for this way that is good, the way of receiving from our parents, from those who have come before us, it is the way that just is good. The way of life as God made it to be. And I want to encourage children and young people in our midst, it is a joy to watch you all grow up and to see you Already now, in ways that I don't think you always see, benefiting from the goodness of this way. Joys in your life, dangers that you, you have been protected from, and seeing you already flourishing in the way of loving the church, loving the fellowship of God's people. It's beautiful, and I want to encourage you to enjoy it. To delight in it. You're meant to say, look, God's word says that it may go well with you. That you may live long in the land. And brothers and sisters far younger than me, you are experiencing that. You are experiencing along that way of following Jesus in the life of the church, in the life of the home, the blessing of that it may go well with you. And God's word connects that blessing with the promise, with the command, because God's word desires for you to be encouraged, to say, here is a blessing, a goodness I have known, and it is part of the fruit of this way. Parents, I would encourage you to encourage your children in the very same way. God's word is exhorting us to life with the grain of reality, and it is good. But there is another challenge we face at this point from God's word. I want you to hear the promise again. That it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. You see, the promise here, or excuse me, the problem here is that this promise, if you think about it a bit longer, seems patently false, what, so if you, you know, if you just seek to live in this way, the way of following Jesus is just going to like always go well with you. You're going to live a long time. You know, has there never been an obedient child, a faithful child, a, a, a teenager embracing the way of following the Lord who hasn't suffered had bad things happen, who hasn't died? Well, of course not. So what does this mean? On the one hand, we want to celebrate the ordinary things of this life, and we embrace this way of life. It is blessed, it is good, and we can celebrate that goodness. But we also know there are plenty of examples in our midst right now as a congregation where this seems just false. I want to, well, I want to exhort you to take this Seriously. Far too many Christian churches, far too many Christian homes, far too many theologies have said, follow Jesus and it'll go well. And then when bad stuff happens, what is the obvious conclusion? That was all nonsense. And countless folks in their younger years encountering those realities have shipwrecked their faith at that moment and I want to warn you against blaming them. So often it is our tone as churches, our ways of speaking of these things that set our young people up for that very shipwrecking. By speaking simplistically, by refusing to acknowledge our own challenges, our own suffering, our own weakness and failures as those who are older and who are going before them. And so we create this atmosphere that is simply setting them up for shipwreck. So many things that the popular, I'm not sure they've ever read a book before, but still really popular atheist types, podcasting and whatnot, say, works because of things we've said faithlessly to our children, the culture we create. And so we must take this seriously. At the time the apostle Paul was writing this, Ephesians chapter six, that you may live long. At the time Paul was writing this, see, this is what people want to say. Oh, well, that's because people were dumb then. And so, like, they thought that's how it was going to go. And, like, oh, no, it didn't go that way. So, they probably all stopped being Christians then anyway. People were just dumber then. What nonsense. At the time the Apostle Paul was writing this, according to one writer, 39 to 50% of children died before their 10th birthday. At the time when this was being written, and everyone knew that, that wasn't like a hidden reality. So, what was Paul saying? What was he writing? And then regardless, you say, well, we don't live in that time. Well, to be sure, we have much better medical care, so many blessings of God's providence. But it remains the case that there is plenty of physical suffering, plenty of ways our bodies are broken and don't work as they should, plenty of ways that all of us of all ages suffer in ways we cannot make sense of. And so we must take seriously, what is this saying? Well, we can begin. Remember, how did we get here in the first place? Why was God's word addressing this promise to the church today? Because the land was never about the land. It was always about promises far bigger and far more glorious than just the world as it is now. It was about this creation set right. And so what God's word holds before us and our children is the promise of God of life in the land of the goodness of this life, of the way of persevering that is good, all as pointers to the new creation to come when all will be set right. And it is a promise of that goodness being experienced even in the midst of the reality of suffering. It is the promise of that goodness being experienced even in the midst of stuff that makes no sense to us. And we must be clear about this. This is not us saying, oh, look, we've got this Bible thing figured out, so now everything in life makes sense. No, it's actually quite the opposite. It's saying there is so much that doesn't make sense. And so we rejoice in the good news of the creator as being the one who can set it right and who has acted to do so in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, to the children and young people in our midst, and to all of us, I trust that is clear to the children, young people in our midst. There are enough here that I can safely assume if we get to be together as a congregation for the length of time that I hope and pray we get to be together, there's going to be some bad stuff that happens. We can assume that. The world is broken by sin. There is a curse that remains. Things are messed up. Some of you are experiencing it right now. Far younger than me. How does God's word address us? Well, sister, brother, none of this detracts from the created goodness of what is being affirmed here, even at the most basic level. That even when things are bad, when things are broken, when things are messed up, the way that is good remains the way that is good. The way that is good remains the way that is flourishing and blessed in this life. Even in the midst of suffering and trials, there is goodness in the way of following Jesus that when the apostle says, for this is right, can be known and experienced even then. But God's word here says so much more. God's promise to you is not that it's gonna all make sense. God's promise to you is not that he has an answer for you of why this is happening right now. God's promise for you is that it will be set right. That it is part of a story that one day in perfect fullness is good. And that In the new creation to come, we look back on all of the goodness we knew in this life. Remember, it's not heaven rejecting this world. It's affirming this life. This life is good. We can look back on it and say, God has set it right. And God can set it right in a way that I cannot begin to explain to you. He's God. We're not. The one who called us into existence by his goodness can set it right by his goodness. And in the midst of that difficulty, look to Jesus. Jesus went ahead of you on this path. He was 12, he died relatively young. All sorts of things we look forward to in life, he did not get to enjoy. He has gone ahead of you on this path. And our Lord Jesus Christ has sanctified that path. He has cleared away. He has defeated all that is evil and dark and demonic that would make that path just what it is so horribly. And he calls you to follow him on it as being the path that leads to the same glory he experienced. And then, brothers and sisters, looking to Jesus, persevere. Beware the demonic temptation to shake your fist for answers as though we are to be God. This is the temptation of all of humanity. We would be gods. Well, at that moment, when in all sorts of perfectly acceptable ways, we're broken by how messed up this life is, even then there is a dark temptation that lurks to shake our fist demanding that we be like God. God can set it right. He has promised to set it right. He has brought all of this darkness on himself and our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he calls you to persevere in that way of following him. And you will find, as countless have found before you, that that way is good. That it is the way of life. Not just because it leads to something in the future, but because it is life now. Now. It is the good things of this life affirmed, made enjoyable, made possible by that way of following this Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I trust you have heard that as God's word addresses our children, this is nothing less than the way of the covenant for each and every one of us. All of this, God's grace, as we seek to help each other persevere along this path, looking to the day when all of us together will look back on this path and proclaim the goodness of our creator. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to trust and rest in the secure identity you have proclaimed to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would enable us all ages gathered as your covenant people to persevere along this way of faith. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.